I'm Julia McFarlane, co-host of the One Decision podcast. We're coming up on a significant milestone. It's our one-year anniversary of bringing you in-depth analysis of the critical decisions shaping our world. To celebrate the occasion, co-host and former head of MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove, and myself, will answer questions submitted by you, the listeners. Spies are usually pretty tight-lipped, so don't miss the chance to write in. Your question might even make it onto the podcast. For more information, head over to OneDecisionPodcast.com. You're listening to One Decision, the show that looks at the choices made that have shaped our world. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. As you may be able to hear from my voice, I've come down with COVID, but thankfully not before we managed to speak to a fascinating guest for this week's episode. For the working diplomat, the highest aims one could hope to achieve, besides representing your country and its values overseas, is to affect positive change. Negotiation, dialogue, helping to solve some of the world's difficult sticking points, and maybe even helping to save lives. There's not many around who could lay claim to having done just that, but we spoke to one former foreign minister who managed one of the most significant feats in diplomatic endeavour, helping to end what was one of the worst civil conflicts of the 20th century. Gareth Evans, Australia's top diplomat, was instrumental in bringing about the Cambodian peace agreements, ending a brutal war that saw some of the most hideous acts of brutality by the genocidal Khmer Rouge regime. The plan was initiated by Evans, and with Australia taking a leading role in the negotiations, that agreement was finally signed in Paris in 1991. But while Cambodia might technically be no longer in a state of war, the former rebel Hun Sen, who was back then the nation's big hope for peace, has become Cambodia's longest-serving leader and an autocrat in the process. We sat down with Gareth to hear how he managed to broker peace in a nation ravaged by civil conflict and what lessons from the past are still relevant to today. Well, when I became foreign minister in 1988, Cambodia was still in terrible, terrible shape. It had been ravaged successively, first of all by the US bombing campaign in the last stages of the Vietnam War, then by internal civil war, then by the horrific Khmer Rouge genocide, which, as you said, resulted in two million people losing their lives through outright execution or malnutrition or disease. Then there was the Vietnamese invasion, which helped to sort of quill the immediate impact of the Khmer Rouge, but created another long-lasting civil war, which was completely unresolved uh, by the late 80s. There'd been a number of international attempts to try to broker a some sort of peace between the, the warring factions and their external supporters, but they'd all come to naught um, through the 80s. It was probably one of the most complex international diplomatic problems you could ever you could ever think about because you had not only the internal divisions between the the Vietnamese-backed Hun Sen government and the royalists and third parties as well, and the Khmer Rouge, of course, is the communist element within the uh, within the Cambodian system. You had Russia supporting Vietnam, supporting Hun Sen, and you had China supporting the Khmer Rouge. So how in the hell did one try to unravel this sort of nightmare of competing interests in which nobody was prepared to give up any influence. The particular solution that Australia came up with um, was, was really pretty simple, um, but it proved to be the key which did unlock the, the diplomatic dilemma. 
The idea was essentially to give an absolutely central role during a transition period to the United Nations, an unprecedentedly central role, not just involving election monitoring or peacekeeping and so on, but rather actually heavily participating in the administration of the country during the transitional process. And the idea was that this, to give the UN that role, would give a face-saving way for China to step back from its support for the Khmer Rouge, which was the, the thing that was really ultimately inhibiting any kind of capacity for compromise from anyone else. China was getting increasingly embarrassed internationally by the um, the genocidal character of the regime, which by then was universally known. But China did not want to cede ground to Vietnam and Russia. It didn't want to be seen to be stepping away from the kind of influence that it had. But giving the UN that role was the key which, which got us there. And it took a long and very, very complex process of negotiation. But that was that was essentially the, the way we, we got there. And we got to the election in, in 1993, which seemed to at last have resolved the problem to create a new government democratically elected and a new capacity for peace. But of course, we'll, we'll come to this now, I guess. Uh, getting peace in Cambodia, um, with all that that entailed, uh, was one thing, but getting democracy and human rights was was something else. I think it's it's very interesting that how instrumental the UN was in in brokering that peace and taking responsibility for that transition, uh, and particularly the the transitional administration. And so the obvious question I I have for you on that is you know, what was it only possible because the UN itself was uh, in many ways a very different body than the UN it is today and it was held in different regard what do you make of the United Nations of, of 2022 do you think it has the influence do you think it has the international respect and the ability and the legitimacy uh, in, in many countries eyes um, to carry out a similar role if such uh, a situation like Cambodia and the opportunity for some kind of brokered peace deal would happen today? Well, a couple of factors were very significant, I think, in the UN playing the role that it did. One was the personal role that Kofi Annan, as Secretary General, played, who um, very much, although he'd been pretty much just a middle-order bureaucrat in his previous career, rose so brilliantly to the occasion as the, um, the Secretary General um, and using the sort of the, the moral pulpit that the um, the position gave him to sort of articulate an approach to the big issues of the day and the big problems of the day, which had a sort of compelling flavour about them. He, he brought people with him, and that was important personally. It always is leadership at that individual level. But what was also critical, of course, was the, was the period we're talking about. It's, the, it's basically, this is all coinciding with the end of the Cold War. It's coinciding with the uh, you know, the breakup of the uh, the Soviet Union, the shifting of all the tectonic plates, uh, the huge new sense of possibility there was about reaching cooperative solutions to big intractable problems, um, which you know now has has evaporated in 2022 almost completely. But when I think back to what was doable in that period, it wasn't just for me the Cambodian peace settlement, which we 
played such a central role in it was the initiation of the um, the end game of the Chemical Weapons Convention. It was the creation of new regional security and economic architecture in the Asia Pacific. A whole bunch of things were were possible because the you know the the Cold War was over and people saw. Uh, the virtue in in a cooperative approach and cooperative solutions. So you can't ever put the onus on the United Nations to do stuff which its key member states are not themselves willing to do. As um, I think it was Richard Holbrook, the US ambassador diplomat, once famously said that you know, blaming the UN for things, a bit like blaming Madison Square Garden when the Knicks uh, lose a basketball game. Um, it's, it's the players that matter. It's the members that ultimately determine it. I really like that Madison Square Garden um, phrase. I'm absolutely going to keep that. That's that's interesting. So it it, it sounds like it was largely the circumstances um, facing all the big players. I mean, we had uh, a United States that was humiliated after the Vietnam War, uh, trying to handle the dismantling of the Soviet Union. You had the Soviet Union itself uh, crumbling and this former uh, great world empire sort of dissolving um, and losing all of its satellite states. And then you have China, which was not the wealthy, powerful China that we know today, but but uh, a China absolutely riven with a lot of socioeconomic uh, issues. You know, the government of Mao Zedong had sent billions of dollars worth of military and, fin- and, and financial support to the Khmer Rouge, and that was before um, some of the worst years of the genocide. And, and obviously, not only wanting to uh, disassociate itself from this bloodthirsty regime, but also clearly looking at their coffers and the many people who had starved to death in their own country, thinking that Chinese money needed to be spent on China and not elsewhere. You know, I ask you this in the context of Cambodia, um, but obviously we have a number of intractable uh, conflicts at the moment going on. A lot of uh, opportunities where peace talks could go on, whether it's in Ethiopia, uh, Ukraine and Russia, uh, Israel and Palestine. I mean, what would you say are the most important things needed to bring opposing sides together, especially when there are ideological differences? Is it the need for all sides to feel that they have lost? Is it for economic gain? I mean, what would you say are the key key things um, for, for, for any peace settlements to be brought? Well, it's a combination of things. It's a, it's a combination of generating a fear that something worse could happen if efforts are not made to find some kind of solution. It's a combination of economic pressure, very often making it unpalatable to sustain a very extensive conflict. It's a function simply of the imagination or lack of it of the leaders of the time and their willingness to take risks uh, in order to tease out the possibility of solutions, uh, which may be embarrassing if they're prematurely uh, disclosed, but nonetheless do offer a way forward. I'm... I'm at the end of the day um, still very much an optimist. I mean, a diminished optimist because of the events of the last decade or so. But I'm an optimist about the unwillingness of the really major players to to get into another full-scale kinetic war. It's not just because of the you know the fear of nuclear weapons and so on. I think it is a genuine fear on all sides now that with the the technology we now have. You know, the conventional wars 
of the 20th century would be even more horrific in terms of their their implications for human suffering and for and for the lack of any rational cost benefit conclusion to come from this um, you know Russia didn't go to war with Ukraine because it was willing to to pay the price of a long drawn out major major conflict that went into Ukraine because he thought it would win in 24 48 hours it thought Ukraine would collapse it believed its own crazy propaganda about the nature of Ukraine as not a serious country. I want to bring us back uh, to Cambodia because I want to talk to you about Hun Sen. Now, he is the 70-year-old prime minister of Cambodia and he was a Khmer Rouge soldier during the civil war in the late 60s to 70s. But he then joined uh, the uh, the rebel force backed by Vietnam that, was, that eventually toppled the Khmer Rouge. Um, he became Cambodia's foreign minister when he was in his 20s and then he rose to power in 1985 and he has been there ever since. I believe he's currently on his sixth consecutive term and he's now one of the longest running leaders uh, in in the world. Did you ever meet him personally? What, what And if so, what did you make of him? And uh, talk talk to us about how the, the peace that was achieved in Cambodia was the best I think you could have hoped for. I'm sure. I'm sure is is, is fair to say, but it has not resulted um, in a a, a democratic peace um, for Cambodia. Well, I knew I knew Hun Sen very well indeed. I dealt with him a lot during the course of the negotiations from eighty nine through to ninety three. Uh, he he used to describe me as his brother, um, which is a bit embarrassing when he turned out to be as dictatorial as he subsequently did. By the time we got to uh, 2014, his behaviour was so bad that I wrote a, an op-ed which was given global circulation through Project Syndicate saying that um, the Cambodian government has been guilty of murderous violence, which was a perfectly accurate description of what they'd been doing since first acquiring half the power in 93 and then acquiring the lot through a coup in 97 and then consolidating their position thereafter through periodically resorting to outright killing of opponents as well as intimidation and fraud and manipulation. I went to Cambodia rather rather adventurously about a year after uh, putting out that, that um, op-ed and Hun Sen heard that I was coming and uh, to speak at a conference and um, Invite and he was due to open the conference, and he invited me up on the stage uh, to join him um, at the opening of this big international conference. And uh, I thought, well, this is an interesting gesture of reconciliation after I've been so tough on him. Maybe, maybe there is a way forward. Well, he took the opportunity to embark upon a sort of the the brown glass eye staring, fist waving fulmination that lasted about twenty minutes, in which he he just absolutely took me apart as his former, his former diplomatic partner that had brought peace to this country, who he'd had the greatest trust and confidence in and affection for, and now I deserted and betrayed him. The international audience was was shocked to its core, and uh, you know we were stunned by all this. The his own uh, cabinet ministers sitting in the front row were were sort of deeply uh, bored by it all because they'd heard this stuff before. I'd heard enough of it before not to be sort of overwhelmed by it, but to uh, 
to sort of stare him back down. But uh, <laughs> it was a, was 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 an interesting example of the, the kind of relationship that I had with him, and the kind of relationship it's been with since. It's been non-existent since because I've periodically said in my own analyses and writing that this is a, a country that had a chance not only for peace but for democracy, for human rights. But it's a country which blew it. It blew it overwhelmingly because of Hun Sen's own personal ambition, his greed, his corruption, his determination to stay in power, and his willingness to employ any methods at all uh, to do that. And so it's it's a very unhappy situation that continues uh, to this day. Um, basically, um, since '97, uh, Hun Sen's been running a one-party state um, in the National Assembly. There's only uh, there's 125 seats, not one of them occupied by the opposition party, which has been banned. Major opponents have been either exiled or imprisoned or, in one or two cases, murdered. And um, it's just a very, very unhappy situation. And the human rights environment, as well as the dem democracy environment, sort of mirrors that. No free speech worth the no name, no free association worth the name, and extraordinary levels of, of corruption as well. So it's a, it's a very sad story. What could have been an absolutely brilliant 21st century story has become a very sad one. And my relationship with Hun Sen has uh, not recovered, and I don't think it ever will as a result of that. But he, he was there when it mattered. He was there, and he was prepared to make the compromises that counted in bringing that solution about. Had he, had he um, you know, stood against it, um, had he refused to, you know, to, uh, to go down the path that the Vietnamese by then were pushing him, uh, then we wouldn't have been able to manage that solution. So I give him credit for that. But... Um, I don't give him credit for anything that's happened thereafter. It's a, it's a tragedy. So, so why did that happen? As someone who knew him well, tell me, is this, is this an age-old example of ultimate power and money corrupting? Or do you think he maybe always had an inner dictator inside of him? And back when he was the freedom-fighting rebel uh, wanting peace, that was not the real Hun Sen? <laughs> well, I don't know that that capacity for analysis is um, is really possible. I, I do know that I even right back um, when he was um, prime minister of the country before the peace settlement had come about, that his his wife um, on formal occasions was absolutely dripping with diamonds in a way that was inexplicable except through um, you know quite a significant element of of corruption producing that, that wealth. I mean, and Hun Sen is now estimated to be worth somewhere between $500 million and $1 billion. And I've never personally understood the, the motivation that um, that leads people to, to greed on that scale. I mean, Putin is a notorious uh, corrupt, you know, squillionaire in his own right. And Najib now in Malaysia has finally gone to jail for, for his Gothic scale corruption. What, what, what is it about the psychology of these people that makes them so greedy and makes them want to be in power, I guess for other reasons as well, but to be in power in order to be able to acquire those kinds of riches? I mean, how much money can you spend during your life? I, I just don't get it, but, um, but that's why I'm an academic you know, politician and not a, not a, not a, not a billionaire. Yeah, well, I could speculate about Putin's psychology for hours, and I suspect it is because of childhood or adolescent chip on the shoulder, Napoleon syndrome, and that explains his machismo and his and his judo. And I think there are other sort of personal reasons uh, for that as well, which I won't say in public. Once they get to a certain point in the sort of the, 
the span of their office and their acquisition and their greed, then they fear to give it up because they fear the consequences, being not just uh, allowed to have a quiet retirement, but actually jail or worse. And that then, you know, that, that, that trajectory is a very, very familiar one, I'm afraid, with, uh, with dictators in these countries. It's one thing to explain why they get to where they do, but then it's another issue again to understand why they stay there, and they stay there very often out of sheer fear of the consequences of being displaced. I know we're running out of time, so I have one final question for you, Gareth. Um, And I read that you are on the board of sponsors uh, for the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Uh, They are, of course, in charge of the doomsday clock every year. So I have to ask you, what, in your opinion, is the biggest threat to humanity today? uh, And what uh, causes you to lose sleep at night? Well, there are three big existential threats to humanity, each of which could destroy life on this planet as we know it. Pandemics, climate, and the risk of major nuclear war. Of the three, nukes are the ones that are going to kill us faster than anything else and on a greater scale than anything else if we were confronted with a really major exchange because of the the nuclear winter effect. Pandemics, we are conscious of the nature of the risk, conscious of what's needed cooperatively to address them, and this is serious, but but nukes are something that we, we do run the risk of, of sleepwalking into, and um, I'm, as, I'm as anxious now about things going badly wrong uh, with nuclear weapons as I've ever been, and I think the doomsday clock uh, people are right to put the, the hands of that clock uh, closer at 100 seconds to midnight than they've been anywhere since the height of the Cold War. And the thing that worries me most is not really so much the prospect of outright aggressive first use of nuclear weapons. It's the prospect of inadvertent use, dumb use, system error, human error, human idiocy. We know now all too well from the archives of the Cold War period just how many times we came close to total Armageddon catastrophe because of that human error factor, particularly in Cuba, particularly in 1983, Operation Able Archer, so-called. And my belief is that, particularly when you add to that now, artificial intelligence, uh, the prospect of cyber offence being able to overwhelm cyber defence and all those kinds of miscommunication and misjudgment that can flow from a breakdown of communications, cyber sabotage induced. And when I look at the kind of command and control arrangements that exist with so many of the present nuclear powers as compared with the, <clears throat> the the sophistication, apparently, of that which existed between the major powers in the Cold War years, even with those consequences I've described. When you put all that together, I really think it's the case that the only reason we've avoided nuclear catastrophe for the last 75 plus years has nothing to do with system integrity or human sanity. It's sheer dumb luck. Gareth Evans, former Foreign Minister of Australia there. We turn now to my co-host Sir Richard Dearlove for his thoughts. Well, I think listening to your interview with Gareth, it was almost like a throwback in time. And the problem for the international community is, you know, we've moved on such a long way and we've moved into a different era. And, And that's almost a throwback when diplomacy and the UN in particular 
played such an important role in bringing, you know, a horrendous um, sort of national tragedy to, at the time, what looked like a more or less satisfactory end. And I suppose, you know, what we are really talking about are the sort of closing stages. Well, it's the aftermath of the Cold War, really, in the closing stages of the Cold War, uh, when, you know, the UN was still much more consequential internationally, and people like Gareth, who are seasoned and accomplished diplomats, could play a sensible negotiating role. But, I mean, I, personally, I remember those events really well. Um, I was in Geneva at the time, so, you know, maybe more familiar than many with UN-related issues. And it was an extraordinary and dreadful tragedy, but one from which, you know, most of the Western world were really quite detached. So it seemed almost unreal that it was happening. There was that sort of distance from these ghastly events, and it, it was almost it was there. It was something happening on another planet. I mean, I know it certainly wasn't in Southeast Asia, but certainly in Europe, we you know we we, we didn't feel the impact of it in quite the way that people maybe in Southeast Asia did. And of course, what subsequently happened, you know, with the Hun Sen regime, which eventually replaced the Khmer Rouge, is that there was a lot of optimism around what the new Cambodian regime would look like. And of course, it's turned into something which is desperately repressive now and has a ghastly human rights record. So although, you know, the killing fields are a part of our recent history, you know, the Hun Sen regime isn't it hasn't you know, covered itself in any glory, given its dreadful human rights record. It's not as bad as the Khmer Rouge, but it's pretty bad. Right. And, and Hun Sen, he was sort of the, you know, he was, uh, he was formerly of the Khmer Rouge until he defected. And then he, I mean, he had, he has a very interesting story. He was foreign minister when he was still very young. And then he rose to power in the, in the mid 1980s. And he carried the hopes of of, of everyone involved in the peace agreement that he would steer Cambodia into a peaceful future. And while I think sort of maybe not peaceful, Cambodia is certainly stable, uh, but it's certainly not a functioning democracy um, in the way that we might have hoped it might be stable. But as you point out, it is one of the most repressed states in the world. I mean, you know, and we've seen that happen a, a lot with the West, maybe not backing the wrong horse, so to speak, but pinning a lot of hopes on on possible democratic rebels uh, who then fall short of the wayside. And I mean, a more recent example is the Free Syrian Army with, you know, in, in the situation in the Syrian civil war. I mean, he's had an interesting story arc, Hun Sen, and I found it fascinating, Gareth's uh, recollection of their relationship and that time that he stood up uh, with Hun Sen and... Uh, uh, and and Hun Sen turned around and said he was my brother and he stabbed me in the back or um, words to that effect. I thought that was a very fascinating insight. It, it does give one insight to some quite extraordinary events. And of course, the, I think the problem with a country like Cambodia and Hun Sen in power, I mean, Hun Sen now suits the Chinese regional interests very strongly. The Chinese have no interest in promoting human rights 
in uh, regimes which they support strongly or economically strongly. And I mean, in a way, Hun Sen has become a sort of Chinese puppet. Uh, maybe that's too strong a word, but uh, I mean, some of the stories now about the way that the Chinese have exploited so-called independent Cambodia, but at the same time, you know, have indebted the economy and, you know, have made themselves an indispensable ally. So I'm sure that Hun Sen, with the Chinese behind him now, feels pretty, pretty secure. And, you know, you, I mentioned already, you have this regional complication, you know, where the Vietnamese have always, who are the other sort of powerful uh, neighboring nation, but the, 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 the Vietnamese have always had this very awkward and difficult relationship with China. Um, and I, I'm sure that, you know, under the surface still, there's a significant struggle for regional influence there. And uh, someone like Hussein ha has really a surprisingly free hand because you know, who, who is going to control him? I mean, the, the country is not consequential enough geopolitically or strategically for anyone to, as it were, contest the Chinese influence. And I mean, Hun Sen clearly was very able and, 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 and rather unusual and emerged as a very, very young man in a prominent position. But I mean, do remember that Hun Sen, you know, was a middle-ranking Khmer Rouge um, before, you know, he, he he dumped them and became their opponents. But, I mean, clearly, you know, he saw a personal opportunity which he's exploited rather thoroughly. I, I mean, there are lots of countries in the world where new leaders have emerged in those... I mean, I'm, and, and they had good intentions when they started, but, you know, it turned rather bad. I mean, the great example is Mugabe in Zimbabwe... I mean, I would even include Museveni in Uganda, who became very autocratic. Right. Well, since we're on the subject, I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you, you characterise Hun Sen as a kind of Chinese puppet, and certainly he has been useful for Beijing. Uh, Cambodia has been uh, one of China's uh, close allies in the ASEAN uh, uh, League of Southeast Asian Nations, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, and, and Cambodia has blocked criticism of China quite regularly. Um, in that part of the world, you have a lot of autocratic, problematic, shall we say, states. You have Cambodia, you have Vietnam, and then you have Myanmar, and of course the Chinese. Uh, they have very close links to the military junta in Myanmar. Which of which of these countries do you think is is the more uh, important strategic Chinese interest? I mean, another country that is also worth mentioning is is Laos, and there there have been fears recently that that Laos may suffer uh, a similar economic plight as Sri Lanka. Um, a lot of warnings that uh, that Laos may be the next uh, big economy to default, and 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 part of the reason is because they have been tied up in a lot of Chinese debt, and of course, debt trap diplomacy is sort of how China tries to aggressively assert its influence, particularly in its backyard and in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, which which of these countries, which of these leaders or regimes, do you think are the real strategic priority uh, for Beijing? Oh, there's no question it's Myanmar, I think. 
um, because if you look at the geography um, and the way that the Chinese have developed transport links down into Myanmar, it gives them access to the Indian Ocean. And um, I think that, um, as it were, geopolitical access and ability to project power into a region which for the Chinese is strategically of key importance because obviously its significant regional opponent is India. And uh, in a way, you only have to look at, look at a map to see that you know, Myanmar provides you know, a flanking opportunity, if one can put it like that, and then to build um, significant naval infrastructure on the coast of Myanmar um, is obviously very important to the Chinese. Now, I mean, they built this massive uh, road that goes down um, from China. It, it's of key importance to the Chinese. I think Cambodia is, it just doesn't even line up in terms of a comparison. But I mean, I, I think that Cambodia has been used by quote unquote, you know, Chinese criminality, but I, I, it's partly state driven in terms of as a base for cyber activity and illegal cyber activity. It's easier if you can, as it were, host it out in another country. So you can't be directly accused of doing it from your own your own sovereignty. That's so interesting. So you, you mean that perhaps the Chinese are using Cambodia as a as a base uh, using non-state actors uh, to launch cyber attacks against the West? Well, my understanding is that's pretty well established. Um, I, I, I'm hastened to add I'm not an expert on this, but I think there has been a surprising amount of um, criminally driven cyber activity which comes out of Cambodia, which certainly isn't Cambodian, it's almost certainly Chinese. And as you say, non-state actors who have a quasi, you know, to whom the Chinese turn a blind eye or more, maybe even more than that, give them support. I want to stay on the theme of world power rivalry, but also bring it back to Cambodia. And I think what is so interesting about the Cambodian conflict is we see the strands at play still present to present day rivalries. Back then we had the Chinese who were arming and funding the Khmer Rouge, the Soviet Union were supporting Hun Sen and the rebels, and then the US was also involved. Uh, they were backing anti-communist groups, um, but that was more to do with protecting the government of South Vietnam and the US for forces stationed there at that time. You know, we had these similar kind of, you know, rising world powers engaging in proxy wars in other parts of the world, we see a looming, you know, world power rivalry between the US and China in terms of, of growing competition. And sort of, you know, that hasn't really broken out into anything kinetic, but that's always a fear that everyone's talking about. Uh, and then perhaps most pressingly, we're seeing Russia uh, gearing up more and more and more, almost baiting uh, the West uh, to, to to come into conflict with, with all these threats of nuclear of nuclear strikes and and most recently the launching of this nuclear train and 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 other sort of incendiary moves and and comments made by Putin and and uh, and the Russian government. I mean, 
all of these world power rivalries, where do you see them going? I mean, they have unleashed devastating, uh, you know, devastating wars to the other countries who've unfortunately served as the proxy war locations for these great power rivalries. But, you know, will these will these rivalries always play out, unfortunately, on at the hands of, you know, poorer nations who serve as their proxies? Or do you think it, it we're, we're in a place where it's going to in, keep on bubbling and bubbling until it ends up in, in open conflict? Well, it's a really tough question. It's a big question. But if you look at, as it were, the two attempts globally that there have been you know, to regulate the international security situation, um, they're both the product of war. So you have, you know, the League of Nations and that attempt to modulate and run international relations that followed World War One after the Treaty of Versailles. And then after World War Two, you know, you have the UN that emerges you know, from from the, from the ruins of World War Two, uh, and and for a period of time, uh, let's say that the UN has been, you know, not not necessarily an effective regulator of the international security situation, but it has been the forum through which most of the deals that have been done have have, have eventually been done, or the the UN has played an important role, and you know, the UN resolutions have been a key part of decision-making in international affairs. But I'm tempted, in, and what was interesting about hearing Gareth talk about Cambodia is it, it was almost a sort of throwback to the way that the world was. Um, and it was you know, reminiscent of <laughs> that happened very easily, of a different time, of a different era. What do I think will happen? I, I, think, I think we're in a process of, as it were, seeing Russian power significantly diminished and that Russia <clears throat> as a post-imperial state is is on its way down and uh, you know Putin's invasion of Ukraine for me you know is a desperate throw of the dice to retain and establish you know Russian power beyond its borders, which looks to me, you know, bound to fail. So are we on the cusp of a new international security situation, which inevitably, in my opinion, is going to have to be a balance of interest between China and the United States? Um, and I, I, I'm really not prepared to go much further than saying that the, the, the one can see a security system which is based on the regional interests of China and the United States, assuming that that does not end up in conflict, which, of course, many eminent international relations academics have said it could or, or, or even have said it will. I'm not so sure that that's true because I, 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 I'm I not sure that the, the, the Chinese intention is, is to challenge the United States, as it were, that, that directly. 
the challenge will be competitive and in terms of trade over time. So, I mean, I, th I think that what we're seeing is a dissolution of the international security system that was put in place after World War II. We're seeing it falling apart. That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. You can stay up to date on all our latest interviews and analysis by subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts. From me and the team, thanks for listening. See you next time.